Welcome to The Conversation with your host, Andrew Brunette. And I'm here on The Conversation with Josiah Magnuson, who is a House Representative. Josiah, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Andrew. Thank you for having me with you. So to begin our interview, let's chat about biblical civics. I understand you've recently written a 12-week study focusing on examining the foundations of government and scripture, while also challenging believers to overcome evil with good as salt and light in the public arena. So why do you think understanding the foundations of government is so important, especially when it comes to the scriptures? Well, I think that understanding the uh, what the Bible has to say about civics and government is critical because it's only when you have Jesus Christ as Lord that freedom and justice are possible. Uh, if you have, you know, an evolutionary process that, uh, you know, kind of determines all things, or if you have some sort of uh, alien social engineering project, or if you just have... Uh, people in charge, then what you're going to end up with is tyranny. You're going to end up with uh, that it's okay for, you know, people to usurp power and uh, tread on the liberties of one another, uh, but only if you have a supreme being who is a good uh, creator and ruler of the world, you actually have freedom. And that is something that we need to understand. Our rights don't come from government. They're given by God. Uh, and that's why they're meaningful, and that's why government can't violate them. So how can we apply it to our daily lives? Well, it's important that we, uh, you know, of course, obey the those that are in civic authority. You know, that's one of the, the main things that uh, Scripture commands. You know, we're not to be anarchists. We're not to have you know, a violent insurrection of some kind, um, you know, and revolt against government. Um, God has created government for the purpose of uh, enforcing justice. And so it's a it's a good institution that God has designed. So, um, but it needs to be held within its boundaries. So, you know, the other thing that Scripture talks about is pray for those in authority. That's so important um, that we would be uh, continually lifting you know, those that are in authority up to the Lord. And um, and then I would say another really important way that it affects our lives is as we um, make decisions about the future, we need to be talking to our families and our churches about how do we uphold the law versus how do we just go along with whatever the government demands because even though we're to submit in general to the governing authorities, yet the governing authorities are to submit to God. And, and our first allegiance is always to God and to his law. And so we need to be thinking about how do we ultimately uphold the law of God, and then how do we love our neighbor as well, because that's how we, that is how we ultimately fulfill God's law. Um, and, and we should be reaching out um, to build unity, and uh, of course, ultimately to win people to Christ, those are all ways that we can be a good influence uh, on society. 
So you covered many great topics in the study, one of which has always been of interest to me, that being the biblical separation of church and state. As we know, our founding fathers were very scriptural when it came to government. Define for us what that separation actually is. So that's a great, great question, Andrew. So I know that uh, there's a lot of different kind of opinions about uh, how separation of church and state should work. So, uh, you know, there is a correct separation of church and state, and then there's the modern view, which isn't really separation of two institutions so much as it is the domination of the state over every area of life. And see, when we have a correct separation between the church and the state, which is what Scripture presents, then we have the church that's free to, to share the gospel and to show the love of God, and the state is narrowly defined within the realm of force. And that's the important thing to remember, is that when we talk about civil government, what we mean is the, the power of force, the power of violence uh, to exact justice. And so you don't want civil government to get involved in anything that uh, you wouldn't use force uh, to compel somebody to do. And so what you don't want to do is compel somebody to... Uh, you know, to try to have faith, that, that is not uh, a good use of force. Uh, you can't have a relationship with God based on uh, a threat of being put to death, uh, which is what the civil government is. And you also can't show love. You can't, uh, you know, distribute to the poor, those sorts of things, based on being forced to do so. You have, that has to come out of your heart. And so that's the difference between the church and the state. The church is ordained by God to... Uh, to reach out in the community and to uh, provide for the things of the worship of God, and the state is, is ordained to enforce the, uh, the natural law and justice in particular when people's rights are violated. So um, what we, you know, we see in Scripture, we, we do see that separation, for example, when uh, there, there were a couple times where, for example, King Saul tried to offer sacrifices as king, in his role as king, and uh, God took the throne away from him because of that, that he, that he was not to preside over worship uh, in an institutional sense for the people in his role as king. Same thing happened with King Uzziah, that he tried to offer uh, a sacrifice and incense and, as if he were a priest, and again, God separated those two institutions. He gave the priesthood to the tribe of Levi, and he gave the kingship to the tribe of Judah, and the two were not to be the same. And so uh, God cursed King Uzziah in that same way. And in the New Testament, we also see the same thing. We see where um, the uh, in Romans chapter 12 and Romans chapter 13, the Apostle Paul speaks to the church in Romans 12 and says, abandon not yourselves. And then in Romans 13, he says, civil government is an avenger that is ordained by God. So he's talking about, he says two different things, a few verses apart, but it's because he's talking about two separate institutions. And we also know that uh, there's the command for the pastor, the church elder, uh, not to be a striker uh, in the, the New Testament. We see that that which means that he's not to use force. He's not to compel people uh, to believe in God, to trust in Christ by the use of physical violence. So, but there is a, a point for physical violence that's very narrow, but it's because 
it, it's to protect people from harm, hurting one another, and um, justice. When somebody's rights have been violated, you can adjudicate in a court of law uh, and provide either restoration or uh, punishment as needed. Give us examples of how the two would be separated. So going back to, again, the, the idea of that the state uh, exacts force and exacts justice while the church offers love, um, I think, you know, again, one of the, the best examples we could say would be uh, in how we treat the, the needy in the community. So the church could provide you know, physical resources that are donated, um, tithes and offerings, whereas the state doesn't, doesn't provide anything for anybody. Uh, what it does is it uh, exacts judgment. It, it provides um, force when somebody has already harmed another person. So it's just two different things completely. Um, you know, so I think that that... Um, I guess if you, if you want, you know, to clarify the question a little further, but I think that's that would be a good example. Is how do we? Uh, is it, the state is not a generous place. It is not a place of giving because it's not coming from a distribution of love. It is coming from a distribution of law and of and specifically again of justice. So one topic that you also covered, which I believe is very vital to the age that we live in, is that of the right response to unrighteous rulers. Let's take that a step further. We live in a world today that is so social media-based that we can't agree to disagree anymore. we rather unfriend and block people. So what is the right response to the unrighteous, and how can we handle it according to the scriptures? Well, that's such a needed discussion to have. So, uh, several things that, again, the Bible says, you know, first of all, we're to be peacemakers as much as lie in you, but peaceably with all men. And, uh, and God, you know, says, blessed are the peacemakers. So, we're to seek for uh, reconciliation with those that disagree or that, uh, you know, even those that are seeking to harm us. Um, where those people have a position of power and are, and are becoming tyrannical or usurping things uh, that are outside their God-given boundaries, what the correct response would be is several uh, several steps. First of all, again, to pray, because God ultimately governs in the affairs of men. And so the middle of the worldview is God sets up whom he will, and so we should pray and appeal to the supreme judge of the world uh, for these uh, for these things to, to play out, and that, uh, that he would have his way um, and, that the, and that the truth and the right will prevail. So that's the first thing, is, is praying and appealing to God. And then the second thing would be appealing to the rulers themselves. Uh, those that are not, uh, not doing right, uh, you want to peacefully, you know, petition the government for redress of grievances. Um, and you can do that uh, either as an individual or as a community, uh, even as a church, you could do that. And... Um, you know, make your make your grievance known, make your your, your points heard, um, and hopefully that would you know change the uh, the hearts and minds, and uh, and you would hope that those that are in office 
uh, you know, care about the people enough that they'll respond. But, of course, that's not always the case. And there are situations where it goes so far that, um, you know, you need to either run for office and, uh, and change the people who are in office, uh, or, of course, ultimately, if there's truly no other recourse, uh, you know, there may need to be resistance to those that are uh, wielding unlawful power. And that is not what we would call rebellion. It's certainly not what we would call insurrection. You're not trying to overthrow the ruler. You're being respectful of the ruler. You're being respectful of uh, the, the person that God has put in that position, whether they're legitimate or not. You still are respectful of that person. But what you do is you say, I cannot conscientiously uh, abide by, I cannot, I will not comply with a law that violates the law of God. And so you, uh, as an individual, can do that. You can uh, choose to obey God rather than men. And then as a, as a community, as a civic body, um, the people can also choose a lesser magistrate, uh, somebody who is in a position of authority, it could be a sheriff, it could be uh, a state legislature that, uh, that would vote on uh, a resolution. So there's many ways to do this, but ultimately you want uh, somebody to say, we will not, as a, as a body, as a state, as a county, uh, go along with this evil decree. Uh, we're going to interpose and we choose to go a different direction. And so God can sometimes raise up those leaders and those rulers who will uh, stand in the gap for the people of the land. Um, and that has been used over and over again by Christians down through history. So let's talk a little bit about your seat with the House of Representatives. What truly inspired you to grow interest in the local state government? So I think... Going back to uh, when I was a teenager, uh, you know, my my mom and my dad in particular were uh, certainly very uh, aware of the state of our country, realizing that um, we had gotten off track of the Constitution and, uh, you know, we were headed in the wrong direction. And so, um, you know, as I was, uh, I was homeschooled uh, through 10th grade and, um you know, that certainly had a, a big impact on my life that, uh, you know, we needed to point our country back towards our founding vision and, uh, and ultimately toward a biblical worldview. And so, uh, that was, that was my driving force. And, um, and then more directly, uh, realizing that, that my representative was not being a voice for my district. And, um, you know, he was supporting gun control, he was supporting uh, you know, higher taxes, um, he was not uh, standing up for our heritage, and uh, and just all manner of, of, uh, of things that the district, I'm sure, was not uh, supportive of, and so the Lord led me to, um, to run for office, and uh, I didn't necessarily think that I would win, I mostly wanted to hold my representative at the time accountable and, and sort of make him um, aware that he needed to to be in line, but um, I was grateful for the support of so many folks that, that came out um, and voted for me, and so I actually ended up uh, winning that election 
2016. And then um, I've been grateful for their uh, their support since that time. So was it a certain issue that you was passionate or vocal about that caused you to grow deeper? So I've certainly been passionate about a lot of different issues. The, the primary one that comes to mind is the pro-life issue. And, you know, the, the fact that we are, uh, you know, now over 60 million babies, I think it's going on 70 million, uh, have been killed in the United States of America. And, you know, it didn't stop after Roe v. Wade was overturned. I'm, I'm grateful for the Dobbs decision. But, um, you know, now we have to fight on 50 different battlegrounds more than ever. And so we still, uh, and even in South Carolina, we have the heartbeat still. But, you know, that's, you know, full of holes and loopholes. And um, I, I think we need something that's a lot stronger uh, that protects every child. Because we don't want anybody uh, that is innocent to be brutally murdered. So that's probably my, my biggest thing. Uh, is the pro-life issue and trying to defend those that, that can't defend themselves. Um, I would also say another thing is the, um, you know, spending levels, uh, just out of control, federal, uh, federal spending, unconstitutional and, uh, stuff that the founding fathers would have never uh, anticipated that we would be doing. And, um, you know, we need the state to roll back our, uh, participation in that, you know, the, the federal dollars that we're getting are driving inflation and they're driving uh, federal control of our policies, and so we need to wean ourselves off of that and stop uh, participating in this ballooning federal debt, uh, and we also need so much more budget transparency, even within our own state taxpayer dollars. Uh, there's all manner of uh, different things that money is going to. Uh, you know, food and wine festivals, uh, BMX biking, uh, you know, Lego parks, uh, the, the list goes on. You know, there's so many different of uh, these little special projects and things that, uh, that are just wasteful. Um, there's a lot of good, there's a lot of good in the state budget, but there's also a lot of things that the public isn't aware of or is kept in the dark about. And, um, I think we need to really get back to the core government functions and, um, and we need, the public to know where their money is going. So those are all big things for me. And then another really important one is judicial reform. The court system in South Carolina, we're only one of two states where the legislature elects the judges. And um, that needs to change, too, because there's so many conflicts of interest. Again, so little transparency. Uh, and uh, I, I think we need to move to a system where it, it's not just benefiting the ones that are already the power players. So do you, are you saying that um, with that vote going on with the people in in there, could they could it sway a, a vote for the judges as far as just knowing them personally? Or do you think it should be citizens' right to vote a judge in? I think just about anything would be better than the system we have now that where it's pretty much just, if you're politically connected and you go, you know, shake some hands in the back room, and you know, then you can pretty much get get in. Um, I think the popular vote system uh, it could work and it works in a lot of states, but it injects 
you know, moneyed interests and, uh, and a lot into these judicial races that we might not need. What I would like to see is a, I think the, the best approach is just the way that the U.S. Constitution is written. Uh, I think the founders were wise when they had the executive appoint the judge with the advice and consent of the Senate. So I think that's probably the gold standard. Um, but what we may be able to do, you know, that would take a constitutional amendment to the state constitution. Uh, so it would be a high bar. What we may be able to do in the near term is at least reform um, who can be elected, that it's not just coming from a, a legislative committee uh, and that it's not, you know, the, the immediate family members of, of legislators. Because that's one of the things that happens is people get their spouse elected, their husband or wife or their son or daughter uh, elected as a judge, uh, just, again, based on political connections. And um, so we need to make sure that it's that it's based on qualification and that we have good conservative candidates uh, that are going to uphold you know, the rule of law and, and what is right. And, um, and so the, the best way I believe to do that is probably governor appointment. Um, the second best would be giving the governor more authority over the, uh, what's called the Judicial Merit Selection Commission. And that goes into who become the judge. And so those are bills that I've, uh, that I've filed and we've got several good, uh, good piece of legislation. So, um, but again, just about anything would probably be better than the way it is now. So I hear that the writings of Thomas Jefferson and other American founders motivated you to be the public figure who you are today. Share a little bit about that. Yeah, so I appreciate that. And um, and as I was reading, you know, like I say, going back even when I was a teenager, I was reading uh, a lot of, of things that, that the founders uh, you know, wrote about. And um, in particular, one of the big ones, uh, which you mentioned the writings of Jefferson, um, the 1798 Kentucky and Virginia Resolution, um, I found to be very uh, shocking as a modern, you know, 20th century American. Uh, the Kentucky Resolution, written by Thomas Jefferson, talk about how the states are not united on the principle of unlimited submission to their general government, Jefferson said. And so Jefferson, his vision for America was not some big centralized government dictating exactly what the states should do. It was the states making most of their decisions for themselves and the federal government just acting primarily for, you know, defense of the country and a few other limited things, which are, of course, articulated in the U.S. Constitution itself. Uh, and Madison shared that view that the Constitution was not uh, some limitless instrument. It was not created to be a, uh, uh, you know, a grant of, of unlimited power. Uh, it was enumerated powers. And um, actually, James Madison has a really important speech that everybody should read. It's his veto message on the bonus bill as he was going out of, uh, of the presidency in 1817. He gave an entire uh, message about why he was vetoing it was uh, canals and infrastructure projects that the federal government uh, wanted to do and James Madison vetoed it because it wasn't expressly authorized in the U.S. Constitution. And remember that James Madison is the father of the Constitution. He was the one that knew better than anybody 
exactly what that convention intended when it wrote the document. And he said that even some of the things that we would think are obvious roles of the federal government, building infrastructure and roads and canals, those were things that he thought, even at that time, were unconstitutional. And um, so imagine, you know, what he would be saying now with everything that, that the federal government thinks that they have control over. So, um, you know, when we talk about medical care, we talk about education, those are things the federal government, um, I don't think it probably ever entered the mind of our founders um, that that would be something that we would be having to deal with. And so the... Uh, so hopefully, you know, we can get back to that vision that the federal government is, is small and its powers are defined, and the states are the ones that really make the decisions and, of course, ultimately moving the, the liberty and freedom back to we the people. So in 2004, you wrote a letter to the editor of the Greenville News on the danger posed by illegal immigration and the need to secure our border. As we have seen on mainstream media over the last few months, thousands have crossed from the Gulf of Mexico illegally into our beloved country. What kind of danger are we in? Well, it's, it's great danger. Uh, there's no question. There's uh, a lot of uh, unknowns, but you know, we do know that there's a lot of, of terrorists, people that are affiliated with uh, with Russia, with China, with Hamas, uh, crossing over the border. And, uh, you know, it's kind of just a matter of time until we see things begin to play out um, with with some of these people that uh, clearly don't have good intentions uh, for once they get here and get settled. So we do need to close the border immediately. This is something that... Um, you know, it's primarily a federal issue. In fact, it used to be that way. Early on in our country, the states, uh, again, pretty much controlled immigration. But now, as of recently, the courts have said that this is only to be handled by the federal government. So we need people in Congress who are going to be serious and, and shut down the border. And, uh, and you know, we need to... We need to build a wall. That's not an offensive thing. That's not something that's, uh, you know, nationalistic. You know, that's a, a, a term that gets bandied about a lot. Um, but building the wall, defending our borders, is a, a very obvious solution. You, you've got to protect your own house, your own home. Uh, everybody understands this. It's common sense. And um, so, you know, if we protect our home, then we're able to minister and, and provide better resources for other countries and it lifts up the world. Uh, but if America goes down the tube and, you know, is, is crushed under the weight of all of these other, uh, you know, people coming in that want to harm us and our families, uh, then we no longer can be that lighthouse. So it's actually more compassionate to say, let's protect what we have and uh, let's protect our own families and our nation. So that uh, definitely needs to happen and, and we can't keep dawdling around. We've, we've got to have people in Congress that are willing to take a stand on that. So do you think that South Carolina could turn into something like New York where the immigrants are coming here, do you think we w would be as welcoming? 
if immigrants came to South Carolina, would we be as welcoming? Well, I, I think we are welcoming for those who are truly in need. I think the, the question becomes, who are the ones that are truly in need, and who are the ones that are either just trying to, uh, you know, get something for nothing, or are they, you know, do they have bad intentions? And right now, there's no real good way of knowing those things. I've talked with the governor. I've talked with the attorney general. I've talked with SLED. Um, none of them really have a good way to track the people who are coming into the state of South Carolina. And um, so we just have a lot of unknowns right now. And I think until we have better data, um, you know, we have to assume that, you know, we're protecting our state and our country. We can't just sort of welcome you know, the stakes into the bed. So how can we do better and secure our borders once and for all? Well, um, I, I do think that, uh, that a physical boundary is a good thing. You know, there's, uh, going back to the biblical principles, uh, you know, Nehemiah, for example, where they built the wall of Jerusalem, you know, and they, uh, recruited the, the families that lived by the wall each to build their own section. And, um, you know, they kept out the, the uh, I think it was the Ammonites and some of those, you know, that were criticizing and that really just wanted to tear down uh, and, and uh, change the, the culture and, and change, uh, you know, the identity of the city of Jerusalem and, uh, and also, like, you know, to uh, destroy it. And so... In Nehemiah's day, they, they did build a wall, and so I think that, you know, is something that nations often have done, is created physical boundaries. Um, I also think the Border Patrol certainly needs, you know, our help. They need funding. Um, they don't need it for the Federal Department of Homeland Security to come down there and, uh, you know, cut apart the, the wires and things that they're putting in place. You know, that's been happening where... Um, you know, especially some of the Texas Rangers and things I've, I've been told have been putting up uh, boundaries, and then you have federal agents come in there and, and tear them down, um, which is just bizarre. I mean, that's that's why there's the effort to impeach, you know, um, Mayorkas, because that is a, a violation of his job as the Secretary of Homeland Security, you know, to actually be contradicting his own his own position, Um by trying to create an invasion of the United States rather than protecting the United States from invasion. So, you know, I think the first step is to have people in there that actually want to protect our country. Uh, and then, of course, the funding for the, for the Border Patrol and then um, getting the physical boundary uh, is also going to help a lot. So describe your experience about being a House representative Well, it's a big question. I'm, uh, you know, I think it's been a good experience. I'm very grateful again for the opportunity, and um, it's a lot of work. You know, there's certainly no question that, uh, you know, it, it, to a degree, it, it takes me away from, you know, my family, from doing things that I would rather do. Um, but I enjoy it. You know, I would, I, I do uh, value the opportunity to fight for freedom for the future of our country and to try to. Um, 
also change the direction of our state a little bit in, in ways that we can do better. And so, you know, I'm going to you know, continue to do that. I've got my, uh, my re-election campaign kicked off on Monday night, so I'm looking forward to that. And um, I'm, I just appreciate the confidence that my district has placed in me, you know, to let me, um, to let me serve. And so, um, I, you know, I'm going to continue to try to defend our family values and uh, defend our Constitution, Bill of Rights. And, um, and so far, I, 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 again, it's a lot of work, but I do enjoy having that opportunity. So can you give us a glimpse of what the job entails? What do you like most about it? Sure. So um, it's divided into, I would say, three basic portions of the year. So from January to May, there's the uh, actual session of the State House and State Senate. So we're officially in session, and then that would usually spill over into um, into June, I would say, uh, a little bit, depending on things that go on with the budget. But um, but that's when we're physically going back and forth to Columbia and voting on bills and you know debating in the state house. Then from about June to roughly September, October, um, there's not anything official. Uh, other than you uh, go and uh, serve on committees uh, once or twice a month, I'm on the Legislative Oversight Committee, which is tasked with uh, cutting bureaucracy, trying to make government more effective and efficient, uh, improving state agencies uh, to serve the people better. So uh, so that takes a little bit of time, but um, you're, you're more free during that period of time. But then November and December, you get into... Uh, what we call pre-filing, and you end up with um, the opportunity to uh, file new legislation, and so that becomes uh, a lot of uh, a lot of your focus during those months is working with whether it's grassroots activists, whether it's with uh, folks from the district, uh, whether it's um, you know just thinking through things on your own and hammering out uh, ideas, putting ideas on paper. Um, that would be a lot that consumes your time during those months. And then you file your legislation, and then you're back in, back in business for January again. So, um, so that's kind of how a year would go. And then, um, what was, and then I guess what was the second question, second part of that question? like most about it? What do I like most about the, the job? Well, um, several things. So the... Really, one of the best things that I enjoy, and this is more recent, would be um, having conservative Christian allies in the Freedom Caucus. And the Freedom Caucus, you know, I helped to um, put that together in April of 2022, and we've got a tremendous team. We have 17 members right now, and um, we were able to strategize together. We were able to go to events together and speak, and um, and then we often will vote together. Uh, you know, we, there's some of us that have different opinions at different times. You know, it's never necessarily everybody all on one boat. But um, but in general, we try to work as a team for conservative issues. And so that is always very enjoyable is to, to talk with those men and women who are patriots, who are standing up for everything that we're talking about, um, both the family values and Christian principles and also... Our, um, our freedoms and individual liberties. 
so that's one of the biggest things I enjoy. I would say the, the really the best thing of uh, being a state representative is interacting with the uh, the people that I serve, the people of the district. And, you know, I'll get calls. Uh, I'll be able to help with things that are uh, happening. It could, be, it could be anything. It could be an insurance problem. Uh, it could be a, a difficulty with uh, VHEC. It could be a pothole uh, in the roads. It could be anything. So um, just trying to, to be a servant and help people with their day-to-day needs that they, that they encounter, state agencies and state government, and then talking with them about solutions for our country because I really do value what, you know, we the people, what the citizenry is saying, and uh, I'm thankful that we have a lot of good patriots who want to be involved and who want to take action uh, to see our country preserved for future generations. So your current campaign focuses on liberty, family, and reform. How do you hope to continue to shed light on these three areas in South Carolina? So the uh, the full platform, you can go to my website, josiahmagnuson.com, and see a lot of the different issues that go under each of those, the liberty, family, and reform. Um, but liberty, it, you know, essentially goes back to our constitutional rights and what we're talking about, the founding vision for our country, um, that we do want to preserve freedom, uh, you know, for our kids and for our families. And then as we talk about uh, family per se, you know, we're talking about defeating, uh, you know, some of the Marxist, uh, you know, CRT and DEI that, that really attack our family values and the, uh, and the structure of our homes. Uh, we're talking about education, of course, uh, you know, preserving uh, good quality education and then also opening up more opportunities. Um, and uh, as we talk about, the, well, we're also talking about crime, I think would be another important one under the issue of families. And then uh, reform, we've talked about a few of the issues. You know, judicial reform is, of course, a, a key one. There's also things like, we said, uh, you know, budget transparency and um, and things like the, um, you know, crony capitalism, like, uh, you know, things where the state is trying to be the one that kind of dictates where the economy in South Carolina will go uh, and, uh, and be this centralized, controlling place, um, which is actually more of a, of a socialistic or, or even fascistic uh, viewpoint versus the free market capitalist uh, view. And so, you know, what I believe is you get government out of business, you, get, you, you sort of get the regulations off of people's backs, and you uh, lower taxes, and you uh, provide the infrastructure that they need. And then those people will be able to succeed on their own. There's no need for the government to have to prop up, and certainly no need for uh, government to pick winners and losers uh, based on who the political favorites are at the time. And, um, and you see in history that when government does try to do that, that it makes the wrong decision. And, and we see that, I think, with the latest uh, BW scout bill, where, you know, the state dropped $1.2 billion of taxpayer money on this new manufacturing plant for electric vehicles, and we're already seeing before any of this construction has hardly started that these electric vehicle companies are all starting to go bankrupt and, 
you know, we're starting to move away from electric vehicles. So this is what happens when you try to put your trust in government for where the economy should go. What we need to do instead is allow for people, for the, the local citizens to make their own decisions and start their own businesses and get their own, you know, uh, build their own companies and uh, give them an equal chance to succeed, not pick certain people um, and push others down. So those were all very important issues for me um, that I think we should make South Carolina better and uh, it will it will lift everyone uh, when, we, when we change some of those things. So what should voters look for if you are re-elected? What should voters look for if I'm re-elected? So I think I'm going to, you know, continue to champion uh, both pro-life uh, issues. I'm going to continue to, uh, you know, stand up for family values. Uh, you know, I think another very important piece of this is, um, you know, some of the transgender nonsense that we've seen. You know, we need to shut that down. We need to stop the, um, the, the general gender mutilation of kids. Uh, that's something I'm going to continue to push uh, that we that we legislate that because actually South Carolina is one of the last states um, in the country, um, well, not in the country, but in the, uh, in the southeast in particular, that um, we don't have legislation on that topic. And we've had a bill sitting in the state house for three years now, it's not gotten any tra any traction at all. Um, and what I'm hearing is the establishment Republicans in the House now, because of the public pressure, which is I'm glad for the public pressure, but now they're going to try to put a bill forward and get the credit uh, for something that should have been done years ago. So, um, but I hope that the issue gets resolved. But that is something I'm going to continue to work on. Uh, DEI and trying to make sure that we don't have. Uh, victimhood mindset being taught in our colleges and universities, that's so important. Um, we got to continue, again, to uh, work for our freedoms. I think another big piece of that, going back to the liberty family reform uh, structure, one of the big pieces of liberty is medical freedom and making sure that we don't have anything like COVID-19 happen again. Um, the way that the governor shut down the state, uh, you know, was to me, a tragedy, and we need to, to limit the governor's power so that he doesn't have that ability um, to do that again, and we don't need to just go along with whatever the CDC is saying or the WHO uh, or the United Nations or the you know, World Economic Forum, all of these groups that are going to try to push uh, the pandemic treaty that's coming in May of 2024. That's another uh, piece of it. South Carolina has to stand up for our freedom and for our citizens and uh, and not just allow for tyranny to roll over us. And, uh, and so that's another important, important piece that we put some um, some laws in place to um, to restrict government from, from rolling over the medical freedom of the people. And then, um, you know, of course, just the uh, you know, tax reform, trying to make sure that people are able to... Uh, like, for example, that they can't be taxed off of their property. I think that's an important one. I'd love to see South Carolina go to uh, a zero income tax. We see that in uh, Tennessee and several other places where, you know, we have a tremendous prosperity in those places typically when people aren't being uh, 
uh, you know, having a portion of their labor confiscated right off the bat. Um, so that is a great option as well. And, um, and I think just in general, you know, trying to defeat the forces that are coming for us, the globalists and the socialists, and, uh, and, and defend the values that have made our country great um, because we, we do have an incredible heritage that we can protect, and we want to pass that on for the future. We don't want to be the ones that drop that torch and, uh, and don't continue to fight for the values of America. Well, Josiah, I sure have enjoyed having you on the conversation presented by The Lantern. Thank you so much for being a guest. God bless you.